Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I'd encourage you to visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a humid summer morning here in the capital is Amanda McKenzie. Amanda is the Chief Executive of Business in the Community, the Prince's Responsible Business Network. That is a business-led membership organisation made up of progressive businesses of all sizes who understand that the prosperity of business and society are mutually dependent. Amanda has also sat as a non-executive director at Lloyd's Banking Group and still continues to chair Lloyd's Responsible Business Committee. Um, Amanda, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us this morning. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that as we record this on July the 5th, 2021, we are still, of course, living under some form of COVID social restrictions, and that has now been the case for the best part of the last 15 or so months. So if we look back over this pandemic period by and large, going all the way back to March 2020, to what extent has this affected you and affected your business? And that doesn't just have to include the context of BITC. We can also discuss Lloyd's in that. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And, and thank you for, for having me. Um, well, I mean, I, I think, uh, so I'll, I'll you know, compartmentalise what I'm saying. So in terms of business in the community, um, uh, we are that interface, if you like, between responsible business and society and community, and we encourage businesses to get to be the best they can be at responsible business. So we had an opportunity, I think, back in March, April last year, to go, if you remember, it was a time when a lot of people were giving, a lot of CEOs were giving up salary, a lot of companies were making very generous donations to frontline charities. And for us, what we were receiving was lots and lots and lots of offers of help. Um, these of either products or logistics or time um, or IT, whatever. Um, and we realised that actually it was a bit of a gap getting it to the front line. So even fair share, etc., couldn't know how they could be the recipient and get hold of this stuff as quick as it was needed last last uh, April. So we were very lucky to somehow engage our whole network and create these mini supply chains which kind of match together a supply of food with freezers donated by Iceland, with refrigerated lorries donated by Hertz, that made all of these things possible. So we were able to use that awful phrase, but pivot very, very quickly mm. to help do that and nobly and brilliantly aided by fantastic companies like Axel and the London Stock Exchange, who gave us founding funding to get, to get on and do that. So we were very, to be honest, we were quite proud of a business um, being able to respond so quickly and actually I would say the creativity of, of my team who was so thoughtful about going, you know, there'll be a bunch of airline meals outside Manchester Airport but we'll be going to wait, I'll track them down, I'll see what we can do with them, those sort of things. So it was it was that lovely mixture 
So, um, you know, as the phrase goes, don't waste the crisis, I, I like to think that we really did do our, our bit. And that programme continues, but now we're much more looking at skills. So as an organiser, as a sort of what do we do, I think we were very pleased with that. I think the tone it took on people internally was that everyone worked extremely hard at a time when people were scared, no question of it. Mm. And then there were some other things that were happening in society, so not least the murder of George Floyd, which brought into stark relief, how do we feel about racism? Are we doing enough? Are we responding in the right way? But brought to the fore a whole bunch of questions around that. Um, now, I'm also pleased to say we run the Race at Work Trust for the government, and we had 200 and something signatories, company signatories, signatures of that charter um, in much of last year. And now we've got, I think, over 750. So if good has to come out of a bad situation, which I think that's always the way you have to think about these things, Again, that was an extraordinary turnaround of British business thinking, you know what, we can do some extraordinary things here. We can lead for a change. And, and they did that. So, but as I said, the knock, knock on effect on our people was they were tired. They were scared. We did probably, we did make some redundancies, not a huge amount, but the um, percentage in, in the end was actually very low. But that was still a very tough time for people to have to go through, for us to have to go through a process like that in order to be strong on the other side, which, as you know, most a lot of charities have had to struggle with that as a balance, as indeed have business. Um, and then I think me personally, just finishing off what is quite a long answer, I hope that's okay. Um, I, um, I, I, I had COVID early on, and I have to say, as we fundraised and made sure that we were fit to, to run the National Business Response Network. Actually, personally, that was quite a tough time for me. My resilience had to uh, come to the fore mm. um, because I had to really sort of work through it and I, and I didn't feel great, if I'm honest. But I knew that the, I couldn't wait to get better to be able to do some of this stuff because if it wasn't done then, it was no, it was of no use to anyone. So um, it's amazing how much that kind of resilience can get you through things. Um, I have to say I didn't respond as quickly as I should to the death of George Floyd. I was, in my own mind, not wanting to just signal good stuff. I wanted to be really thoughtful about doing things that had real depth and integrity. But I think I learned that there's a mixture of both. Um, and that set me on the path of quite a lot of reading and learning last summer around um, how the issue of race and equality is felt. And I hope I'm better and stronger because of it. I certainly uh, feel I'm very much in the nursery school still on that, but I'm definitely learning and I'm aware of what I don't know, which I guess is the, the start of learning. Um, and then I think I've probably come through that in terms of the, the proverbial leadership journey. Mm. Um, it, with just having experienced and observed a much more um, accelerated I think, view of what modern leadership is and that, that combination of being authentic over these words and, and as part of that, willing to be vulnerable. But it's not vulnerability at all costs, um, interestingly. Um, so I think, I think I'm think i still sort of assimilating what that means as I observe other leaders. But I am very heartened, actually, in terms of business about the style of leadership that is seems to be the more prevailing one at the end of that period of time. 
There've been some real sort of lingering issues in society that have been amplified by the pandemic, haven't there? You've mentioned, of course, the uh, the death of George Floyd for one. Um, we have noticed some deep-rooted inequalities with how COVID is um, impacting certain communities adversely compared to others, and we're looking into a lot of reasoning for that. And another issue that has emerged as a key one from the pandemic is mental health and well-being, and rightfully, we're talking an awful lot more about that. Within the Leaders' Council of late, we talked about looking after our mental health, both in terms of ourselves and business as business leaders and also our workforces as well. When it comes to mental health and well-being, um, what sort of steps have you taken to try and keep tabs on that? Um, and, and in fact, thank you for raising both those, because in fact they are things that as, as a campaigning um, and membership organisation, we're definitely working on those. And in fact, just last week we published a uh, paper on the what is this that your uh, work was good for you. So for us, it was about thinking about this issue that says, okay, so we, we, we've done a lot of people and a lot of thinking around what are the steps we can take to mitigate the harmful effects of, um, of work or how work can affect your mental health. I think the good news is that the past few years that um, mental health does feel to me, uh, I hope you agree, much more on par with physical health than it ever was. Mm. I suspect there's still a little bit of prejudice, but I think it's significantly less. But what the next step to that is, are the small changes or even wholesale changes but that don't necessarily affect productivity or whatever else that would that you could change in your working life to, to mean that work literally is good for you beyond the obvious, which is... <laughs> Not having any job, it's probably not great for you either. So, I'm, you know, there's clearly a facetious answer, but then there's hopefully a, a one that says, oh, that would be very good. So we published that paper last week. As an organisation, we've tried to do a lot on, um, we've got um, some brilliant wellbeing advocates and various ideas, you know, on, you know, having just 25-minute meetings, not half-an-hour meetings. Everyone always knows they've got a little time to run out down the stairs or get a cup of tea or something. Um right through to, you know, the well-being day. We have a group of people that are really thinking this through. We had a step challenge for everybody a couple of times. Um, so everyone's just been really thoughtful. And we also have a try and keep a yellow hour in the day where that's the time when people shouldn't have calls or meetings. Um, and ideally, for internal purposes, to keep the same hour. So we've just really tried to think through what are the practical things what the systemic thing, and in terms of our actual agenda, where we might be taking that. And just thinking about some of the changes to everyday life and working practices that have come out of COVID, such as sort of social restrictions that hopefully will be going toward the sort of end of this month, and also flexible working practices. Are there some things that even in the post-pandemic world you think will remain part of the status quo? Um, yes, I mean, clearly the debate rages, doesn't it, on how many days in the office is the right number, etc. And, mm. and I clearly feel ultimately, it, it, you can't, how can you possibly prescribe the right number? It has to be born out of, um, you know, the, the group that you're working in, the nature of your work, um, what the team needs. And I think it's sort of, there'll be a coalition, there'll, everyone will coalesce, sorry, around some core thoughts of how that team will most effectively work. Uh, I mean, I, I, I do slightly worry that 
the act of not being together physically, whilst everyone's quite enjoying it, I, I'm not sure we've yet worked out what we've missed. And mm. the, no, I don't necessarily mean, well, potentially in terms of productivity or even in terms of business development, what have we missed? Quite apart from the nurturing side of being together and how much more supportive that could be if you were physically in the same room. And it might turn out that it isn't, or it might turn out that we've profoundly missed it. But it's almost like until we all get back together again, at, at sufficient scale, we sort of don't know. Which is why I think it, it, it will be a combination of some great leadership, which is about listening, really, really listening, really understanding what's going on, and then being willing to either test things, try things, but importantly, create a sort of culture where people can be honest about what's working for them and not working for them, but also honest about, you know, what is expected of them and what the team needs as well. It's going to be important, isn't it? Because I think that mental health and well-being ties into that and it's about what suits individual workforces better. So we're going to have to see that hybridised approach moving forward because working from home isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all solution. And there's going to have to be a lot of flexibility shown by businesses, even in the post-COVID world. And luckily, we sort of set the tone for that over the last 15 or 16 months, haven't we, with how organisations have pivoted. So I think we're sort of well-placed to continue adapting to an extent into the future, aren't we? Yes, but but, and also acknowledging there's an awful lot of jobs out there that physically can't be done anywhere else but in the workplace. Mm. So, you know, I think we must be careful. We are in in thinking about, you know, our our work colleagues who who are in that position. You know, if you you work in the Lloyds branch, for instance, that's where you work. You're there to serve the customer physically in the branch. So again, ensuring that we take the lessons that we've learned from the past few months, uh, from the past yeah several fifteen months, but but never never forgetting them as well. And that we always clearly you know who we were thanking in earlier yesterday's all the NHS workers etc. And they're never going to have that choice. Our bus drivers are never going to have that choice. So you know just really thinking, always being mindful about the broad population that we're leading I think is really important I agree with that certainly and thinking about the next sort of 12 months uh, just as we bid to move out of Covid restrictions hopefully for good Amanda just before we wrap up on the show this morning um, what are your ambitions for both Lloyd's and BITC and what are you really hoping to sort of achieve as we leave Covid behind and move into the post-pandemic period um, well as business and community I hope we can cement that the accelerated journey that I think businesses have put themselves on um, these past few months uh, I always feel that I was slightly concerned that quite a few businesses were sort of batting down the hatches and, and not do so much but actually they're thought about um, getting to net zero, they're thinking about mental health, they're thinking about inequality and diversity has been phenomenal so I think our job's going to have to really be help them on that journey. And for those that aren't quite where they need to be, again, help them with that, but also get the companies that are leaving to help the others. Because I just think there's no time for everyone to make the same mistakes. Everyone's now got to collaborate in a way that basically mm. they've never done before. Um, and and quite simply, I think for corporate Britain um, and Lloyd's in particular, you know, they, they have they, they have their purpose statement is helping Britain prosper. I mean, I think, and, and right now, very specifically helping Britain recover. I think the scale and, and the importance of any financial services organisation is huge to helping the nation. So 
they just have to really think that through. Um, but but I think fundamentally, business as a force for good is is something that we should all really apply our minds to and and um, and harness. I think that's very right because the government has talked a great deal about building back better as part of the economic recovery. And I think taking those issues into account and making business and industry a force for good is exactly the way that we should approach it. And we should harness that community spirit that we've found during the lockdown. I think that's very, very right. And I think, Amanda, as well, as we actually start to see that coming into action and we understand what sort of shape the economic recovery is taking, I would actually love to welcome you back onto the show and just catch up as to how things are going on within BITC and within Lloyd's and also just discuss what state our society is in at that point because I've thoroughly enjoyed welcoming you onto the show today. I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment and it has been very thought-provoking and a real eye-opener, I have to say. Well, that's, that's very kind of you. I'd love to come back and thanks for all your work too. Thank you. We are grateful for your time, Amanda, because without, um, of course, yourselves coming on to the show to speak with us, we couldn't do what we do here at the Leaders' Council. And just because we're not quite out of the woods yet with COVID, but we are hopefully closer to better days, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to welcome Amanda McKenzie, Chief Executive of Business in the Community and also Chair of Lloyd's Responsible Business Committee onto the programme today. Coming up next on the show, we're going to be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his views on the COVID-19 pandemic period and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about 
more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision one of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world except for the very poor has been the distribution of food a lot of it on computerized uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down we'd be in real trouble so i think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well so have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging Um I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.